for another amazing, outstanding, and wonderful episode of a the Gruesome Twosome in ATT Confidential, where Zell and Andrew can suck our asses, because this is Brayden and Dan, and I'm Brayden. And I'm Dan. ATT Tag Team Champions of the Gruesome ATT Wrestling Twosome. League. Uh, ATT WF <laughs> um, Soon to be a thing That'll happen So I'm what we're talking at. about tonight is We're talking about the Mantel UFO incident uh, We briefly referenced this on Case File 181 mm-hmm. uh, Which was the Japanese UFO flight And uh, we mentioned it because um, Part of the reason um, some of the actions that were taken in that case file by the Japanese pilot was because he was aware of an incident um, with the UFO uh, referred to as the Mantel UFO incident where a pilot actually lost their life. Um, we briefly mentioned it. We didn't talk too in depth in it. There's not a lot to this case. I'll, I'll it's, it's a pretty straightforward um I don't think we could have done a, a full case fall on this one. It's it's pretty short. Uh, it's pretty cut and dry. And like you said, yeah, Captain Teruchi, who was piloting Japanese Airlines 1628, uh, when they asked him if he wanted military intervention for the sighting that was occurring or the aircraft that he had sighted, uh, he said no because he was aware of this Mantel UFO incident, which happened on January 7th of 1948. Uh, this happened in the southern part of Kentucky. So this was over Franklin, Kentucky, any of our Kentuckians who live out there. Um, and like we said, this is one of the few UFO incidents uh, legit UFO incidents that we know of where a person lost their life as a direct result of pursuing a UFO. And then there are the rumors that they had engaged in some type of combat or perhaps there was, there was evidence or there was interpreted that perhaps um, Captain Thomas F. Mantell, uh, who the case is named after, uh, had engaged in some sort of combat with this UFO, but we'll get to that. So this whole incident spans pretty much, it's almost like a full day or at least half a day. So yeah, I'd just ha- say half a day is probably a better so description. You, right. So about like one <laughs> twenty PM, you had at least technical Sergeant Quentin Blackwell, who was working in the tower of Godman army airfield at Fort Knox, Kentucky received a phone call. Uh, from military police in the area saying they had received phone calls from the Kentucky State Highway Patrol who said that they were taking a lot of phone calls or they were fielding a bunch of phone calls about something that had been flying around the area that did not match descriptions or could be identified as a plane or any type of aircraft that they were familiar with. And uh, this is 1948, January 7th. So it's uh, you know, this is an older case, but people are well aware of what planes are <laughs> at this point. So it's not one of those cases of like, this is the first ever f- the plane I've ever seen in my entire life. Like these people would be have seen them. So this is something they've never seen before. Um, 
that's causing concern enough that you know cops are called and highway patrol is seeing it and they're they're making calls to the military it's that concerning yeah i guess i guess right after the war too you'd be kind of like you know you're still a bit on edge i remember like when did pearl harbor happen like 1941 (laughs) right so it's not it's not like that long ago like it's still in the memory of like I'm not saying that there's anything. I don't know what imp- if there's any important objects in Kentucky. Not saying that Kentucky's not important, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you had dozens of people calling about this strange aircraft that had been flying around, or not necessarily flying around, but what actually marked it as unusual for most of this most of the people who cited it, they said that it was hovering um, in the air, like stationary in some parts. Like it, it wasn't definitely wasn't a plane definitely had a round shape. Uh, and it's according to some of the reports, it even seemed to glow at some points or it seemed to give off a, a whitish or an amber glow. Uh, according to some of the witnesses who were, observed this craft or this this aircraft uh phenomenon floating around their towns or at least you know nobody nobody seemed to be directly under it but they need most of the people seem to see it from a distance and it was so, just re- like moving remarkably slow like if anything like from the reports and stuff that i looked at it's like that was a like everyone was like commenting on how slow moving this thing was it was almost as if it was just drifting in the sky Right. And, and you can, yeah. Like a Goodyear. Is this a Goodyear? Is this the first time the good? When was the first flight of the Goodyear blimp? This is the first secret test flight of the, of the Goodyear, Goodyear blimp. blimp. <laughs> yeah. This is the, the prototype for the Goodyear blimp. Now, uh, uh, like Brayton said, this was 1948. So the year before 1947, that's when you had Roswell. So you had the Roswell crash uh, that was probably still kind of within the people's minds. And the people who lived around this area, like there are, a number of air bases or there were a number of air bases around and in Kentucky, like Fort Knox is record, uh, not necessarily an air base, but military bases and things like that. Uh, military aircraft in the area, people would be able to recognize it. And um, from some of the reports and some of the interviews with the, uh, with the witnesses from the invested, the people who investigated this, like the air force and um, FAA and things like that, you had, um, people who were like the way they talked about their their sightings it's like i i know what a plane sounds like Like, and there's there's people who are you know farmers who are familiar you know they're out in the field all day and some of them talked about how they could recognize i know i know what an airplane sounds like Um, (laughs) well like they would also know what the goodyear blimp looks like because the first flight of the goodyear blimp was 1925 so oh damn Right. Yeah. So, well, this is the advanced. This so, is the one they so built did, with alien technology. But here's the thing, then. What I'm thinking is, if it's not the Goodyear blimp, this might be a bona fide UFO case. <laughs> that's that's what <laughs> that's what sold it for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so around 2:45 p.m., uh, you had four F-51D Mustangs uh, of Sea Flight of the 165th Fighter Squadron out of, of the Kentucky Air National Guard uh, were already up in the air and they were asked to go ahead and approach the object. So just to go see if they could get eyes on whatever this thing was that they were getting phone calls about. 
So you had these uh, these aircraft P-51s. These are Mustangs. You look them up. They are the very quintessential, you know, World War II prop fighters, single prop fighters, uh, you know, whatever you yeah. think of when <laughs> when you think of like I uh, think of the ones with like the jaws on the front. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. Pretty, pretty much that. And uh, so these are maneuverable fighter aircraft. Um, I don't think that necessarily these ones were the these ones were equipped for fighting. I think they were doing some type of transport duty at the time. Uh, but in their on uh, route, they were asked because they were in the areas to go ahead and check out what this thing was. So the person commanding this was uh, uh, Captain Thomas F. Mantell. And so he Which is was crazy of- to me because like this isn't a grizzled like when I first started looking at this and heard about it. I thought this was some grizzled, like, fucking veteran. Yeah, I've got I've got more years in the sky than you do alive, kind of guy. He's twenty five years old at this yeah. point, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> think about what you were doing at twenty five, or if you're not twenty five, think about you in a few years being the captain of. of like, I'm like, I was nowhere responsible enough. <laughs> uh yeah so uh captain mantel is relatively young at 25 years of age he's and... basically maverick from top gun yeah yeah i i wouldn't i wouldn't well i don't necessarily think did he's he goose have... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <might be> goose. <laughs> i'm I not guess necess- he's more of a goose um he does he does have a uh official like military record and i think it's it's he's actually a pretty distinguished pilot but like brayden said i mean he's not a whole bunch of experience fighting i think he mostly fly a flow uh transport jobs uh when during world war ii or during turns and and part or, you know last couple years of world war ii he was flying transport for a couple of airplanes um but i i'm pretty sure he had a uh, distinguished career career i think he won an award or two for doing um i think during d-day so he's not he's not your total new guy he's not yeah. he's not a complete uh wet behind the ears uh newbie at this but he does decide to take his uh, aircraft his p-51 mustang up to fifteen thousand feet to where he radios the tower and they have records of his transmission uh, and which he are said of- Tower, I got the need, the need for speed. <laughs> uh, something like that. He said. Uh, it, <laughs> he said that the object uh, is above me and appears to be moving about half my speed. And then later, it said that he would report that this thing is metallic and it is tremendous in size. So th- there's a little bit of dispute about whether I think he said tremendous or monstrous in size. There's a, you know some word choice. Well, either either way. But- Either way, it's it's unfortunate that he passes away because like tremendous in size and monstrous in size, like it yes, it paints a picture, but not an accurate picture in your head. Like that could be anything. Like, you know, like any like what are we talking? The size of a football field, twice the size of that. You know, you know what I mean? Like it's it's hard to paint a realistic picture of what happened. And it's unfortunate that we this is what we have to go on. But you know, that being said as someone who had flown in D-Day and stuff, I guess it does lend some weight to him saying tremendous that he had seen, he said he'd seen a lot of, you know, other kind of flying crafts. So saying something's tremendous in size, um, you know, it would have, it would have to be, I would say, I would assume that it's 
probably bigger than most things he's ever seen in the sky. Yeah, I mean, he's able to judge the size. Now, if you're picturing in your head, like, um, Mantell pretty much pulling like a straight climb going after this thing like as, as fast as possible. I think that's uh, you're, you'd probably be a little bit inaccurate. Now, that's what I imagined in my head that you that's know, what uh, I did too. He, yeah. gun- <laughs> he gunned the engine and you know, he, he fucking slams the throttle forward and starts going all the way up after this thing as soon as he sees it or gets eyes on it. But uh, looking it up, you know, it's it's actually the the way the Mustangs climb or uh, aircraft of that time climbed. I'm not sure they, they probably still do it today, but to increase your altitude, like you go in circles, you don't go straight up like you don't you don't go on a vertical climb and then, you know, and then just gun it all the way up. Uh, yeah, everyone he, knows you stall and the prop just goes. Right. So and then you he, uh, in order to get up there, it, it took a good amount of time for him to actually get up there. So from like. It's like 245, uh, you had them kind of doing this thing. And then it's like, I think it from there to like 310. Now, he had other pilots with him who were accompanying him while he was, they were trying to get a, you know, a closer look at this object. You had Lieutenant Clements and you had Lieutenant Hammond who actually ended up uh, turning back uh, at at about like 13,000 feet or so. Now... It, these these certain aircraft, the P-51s, were equipped with oxygen equipment. And military regulations at the time required that oxygen be used above 14,000 feet. So Hammond uh, radioed back that they were abandoning the intercept, but Mantell, who actually on his aircraft had no oxygen equipment, had continued to go after the craft, and Which then is- he didn't acknowledge the message from Hammond. So Hammond radioed him, said, I'm turning back. You know, I don't have enough uh, oxygen for this, and I don't think um, uh, Mantell had the things either. But then Mantell didn't even, you know, respond to the message. Which is which is interesting because I was thinking about that. Um, you know, when I was looking through, and it, it it said nothing that these things were equipped for any kind of like dog fighting or 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 anything like that. Other than getting a look at it, which he already had. Whoa, I I can't understand his reasoning for maintaining pursuit of this object. Yeah, and like kind of the record around here gets a little bit shaky because nobody really had eyes on Mantell at this point. You had the two pilots like breaking off pursuit, um, and Mantell was the only pilot at around like estimate. I think it's around three ten p.m. is the next kind of timestamp. Is that he was the only one left chasing this object? alone at 23,000 feet. And then at 3.15, about five minutes later, everyone lost radio and visual contact with them. They couldn't raise them on the radio and nobody could see them. And so after you lo- they lost contact with him, about two hours later, uh, about 5 p.m., they started the uh, the search for, uh, for Mantell. And, and unfortunately, they found on a farm in Franklin, Kentucky, the remains of Mantell's F-51, which was pretty much scattered pieces of it around half a mile. So uh, the, the plane had pretty much broken apart or seemed to broke, be broken into pieces and spread out over half a mile. And eventually they found Mantell's body, which was inside the broken co- the cockpit. And they found his like he had his watch on and they were able to see that his watch had stopped at 3 18 p.m and that's when they kind of assumed that you know shit had gone wrong 
Which is weird that his watch had stopped so... Like, do you think that could be just coincidence that it stopped um, after everyone had lost contact? Or are they saying that, like, he potentially hit the ground at 318? I just found it peculiar that the watch has stopped. Um, and I and I guess I only find that peculiar because we look at, a, like, we see a lot of sci-fi movies and stuff like that where, you know, aliens or some paranormal presences around and your clock stops ticking. Because I'm not thinking he had a digital Casio. I'm thinking this is an analog watch. Um, I just kind of found that peculiar that it stopped at 318. Yeah, I'm not I'm not 100% sure about like the reason for the stoppage. I know it's commented yeah. on and that that and and in the investigations like this is what gave them kind of the uh A rough reasoning. Up. Well, they reasoned that this was the time that the the thing and it's probably somewhere in the investigation notes um probably somewhere just mentioned real quickly. But I, I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't okay, remember exactly what type of watch he was wearing. Let, well, let's just think about that. I don't. I don't think there was any kind of digital watches in 1948. No. 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 <laughs> so this is an analog watch. Yes. Um, now, I guess there's two. I guess two theories. So if they had at by 3:15, that's the last visual contact they have with him. So he hasn't crashed. That gives. Um, three fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, three minutes before the watch stoppage. So either the coincidence is that his watch just happens to stop after everyone loses visual contact with him, just purely coincidence, and then he crashes, or the plane crashes and it, it stops on impact. I, I think there's there's not enough. Like I think the watch stopping by itself is too much of a coincidence in the air at that time right after. Um, I, I just, I find that portion of it, even when I was going through it, I was like, this is very strange. The watch stopped. I kept getting hung up on the watch. I wish we knew more about it. I knew, we, I wish we knew if it was like a hand cranked one. Um, would they stop on impact? Like 318, I, I wonder how fast the free fall is from 23,000 feet. Would you hit the ground in three minutes? So, yeah, going down, let's see, straight down, um, all the way down from like third, what was he at? What did we say he was at? Like, he was at 20, he was left alone at 23,000. I don't, like, I know his watch stopped, let's see. So his watch stopped then, and then. Because we know they saw him at 315. So that only gives three minutes for something to happen to that watch. And I'm just saying like, is it is there a possibility that if it was like one of those hand wound watches that he it just all right there there it is a i mean it's a it's a analog watch so it's like a, it's yeah. a wrist watch uh i'm not exactly sure what exactly watch that he was wearing but they said that it was shattered um and it stopped at 3:18 p.m. which gave them the evidence that they needed to reason that it had stopped on impact so it had when he had crashed, that's, that's what it stopped, stopped the watch. Okay. Now, the other thing is about this before we get into the investigation and stuff is um, I'm sure Mantel, uh, being a seasoned pilot, he had flown at various heights. Um, um, I'm going to equate this to like when you're diving and doing like scuba diving, um, a lot of instructors and stuff and um, teachers and you will dive to a depth 
like you're only safely supposed to dive to 30 meters, but some people will dive a little further to push the limits um, in order to see what happens to their body and how fast, um, what's it called when you get drunk underwater? Um, Are you talking about I know, I know the, that altitude sickness is hypoxia, but is it? Uh, when you go down far enough past 30 feet, you start to feel drunk. Right. Um, and some people test like how with it they are in case they had to rescue someone. Right. Um, so I, I'm going to assume that Mentel had, had flown at either these heights or near these heights before in, in training. Because again, I just don't understand running the risks to just get another visual on this thing, which you've already seen. Um, so I, I just, I, I kind of wondered if he was in some sort of trance from this thing, whatever it was. So, yeah. Um, like, I, like I said, hypoxia, which is kind of the, uh, the foremost theory about what happened or maybe affected Mantel's judgment and going after this craft, uh, symptoms, even even mild symptoms can probably begin at as low as about six thousand feet, um, or you know, just about slightly higher than Denver, Colorado's uh, altitude or above sea level. And people, nitrogen narcosis, that's what it's called. That's the other one, yeah. That well, that's that's from like the mixture in your thing, right? Or yeah, yeah, and the your depth, thing. yeah. Right. You're you start to it, yeah. The nitrogen like starts to go into your blood or something. It starts to remember. hit different. <laughs> yeah, it starts to hit different at 30 meters under the sea. Uh, so people traveling around like like 9,800 or 10,000 feet are usually, and, and well below 14,000 feet, are required to use oxygen in aircraft. And that's according to Army regulations. So he would have been aware of those. I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure if he had a lot of experience flying at those high altitudes because i don't think you would engage a combat like at those at those altitudes it, it, most of his like he was flying transport duty so he i don't think they were flying necessarily like super high so i yeah. don't think it plus his aircraft didn't have oxygen equipment the other ones were like running low i think one had like a faulty uh well a faulty one but they had been in the air for kind of like a good amount of time and i don't think they were they were equipped to do this so the other two made the judgment call to go back and Mantel kept going. Uh, whether his uh, his state of mind was affected by hypoxia, I mean, that's still kind of up in the air because we we don't really know. But they lost the fact that he didn't answer any radio calls. I mean, it's strange for sure that he didn't answer any radio calls. Like the last thing he said is, you know, it, it, this this thing is huge. It's metallic, and then boom, and then it's out. So it, it, from it, a, a very the mundane explanation being that you know he he passed out soon after he gave that last transmission you know a uh, plane goes into a tailspin or a spin you know comes in tight you know and then he breaks you know, apart right it breaks apart because the p51 i don't think is, is not rated for that fast so once the, the once the spiraling dive comes down at about thirty thousand feet it just pulls itself apart it, yeah it just rips apart and that's why you get the the, the spread of the crash so um, one witness on the ground, William C. Mays, said, reported that he saw the aircraft as it circled uh, at that altitude and then watched it fall, actually watched it fall from the sky and it broke apart. And he had actually signed an affidavit uh, hours after the accident. 
So it's like you had people who witnessed the crash and people and saw the plane coming down and not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, there were any there's no reports really of a, that I'm aware of of flashing lights or anything like that. And, you know, he didn't hit him with no. the laser or stuff like this. Um, you will well, get there is this one <laughs> there is this one report about there was like tiny holes or something within the craft or some uh, somebody's somebody reporting that they saw uh small uh like punctures or something within the craft and and in the cockpit but well, apparently that is something that is reported but it's not necessarily that was ever verified like the first reports of that actually popped up i think in the 1960s or 70s in a ufo book about that was addressing the like multiple cases and kind of mentioned it in passing without any real reference it just said well, that you know implying that something yeah shot, shot him the down. plane but the, I would say you could argue that that's probably not the case based on the same fact that they know that uh, Mantel was either dead or unconscious when he hit the ground because there was no attempt to um, abandon the aircraft to pull his emergency chutes or anything. The canopy was still locked. Um, so like he, they can basically piece together that he was either dead uh, during the spiral or unconscious the entire time. Yeah. Uh, so he, the accident investigation went on for a while. Like it was, it was pretty, I mean, it, it's pretty clear cut and what they thought ha like physically happened. It, yes. But at the same time, they saw this unknown craft, right? So I'm, right. I mean, that probably throws a little bit of the wrench into it. Uh, yeah. the investigation. So the investigation of the crash is, it seems pretty clear cut about what happened and, and they're able to put together a pretty clear story. The investigation of the aircraft, on the other hand, of what what this thing was, is a little bit more complicated. It's it's pretty thorough. You can find a lot of reports about it and stuff because it was event it was investigated uh, first by pro like it, it was put on the the project sign. It was put under there. So project sign being the uh, the precursor to uh, project Blue Book. I think it came before or after Project Grudge. Uh, either one. So you had them going in here. So it was a very, you know, this was a government run investigation in the first and the Air Force did theirs too to back them up. And you had them go out into the field. They took official written testimonies from service members and people who had uh, witnessed the aircraft itself, who had been manning the direction finding stations and stuff. You had one person, I think Albert R. Pickering is probably one of the people who gave the most detailed accounts or probably the most relevant ones. And he had written, at least in his statement on January 14th, 1948, about a week sorry, <laughs> about a week after the crash, um, they had interviewed him and he had given his details of what he had saw uh, in in reference to this craft. So he reported it seeing this thing moving from one place to another. Uh, it seemed to have a tail that was visible and seemed to be about five times the length of the object. So it had some sort of tail that was trailing out behind it. Um, and it said that this thing had kind of got it gone up and down. It seemed to decrease and, and, and increase its altitude. And then it would uh, go very near the ground and then it would stay there for about 10 seconds and then it would climb back up at a fast rate is what he said. And then back to its original altitude, which he estimated around 10,000 feet and then leveling off. And then he said it disappeared into the overcast that they were having that day. So you had you had this thing that was moving and he he described the movement as being like an elevator. So it went like straight up, straight down, 
wasn't like yeah kind of, it didn't but it didn't go and, with and like a that's you know, that erratic movement of like that kind of movement is what like you know you hear all the time with some of these objects yeah his estimate about how fast it was moving i mean he said it was is somewhere greater than 500 miles per hour in level flight uh he said that he was able to see it and observe it for about 20 minutes and there was no sound that could be detected uh from where he was at the time so and i don't think anybody i think a lot of the um interviews and uh, reports that they got about this craft nobody reported hearing any sound uh from this craft yeah so you had other members who confirmed pickering's observations uh including uh the civilian crew uh one of the civilian crew uh a tower operator by the name of alex uh bordreau or Boudreau. Boudreau. sorry Boudreau. Yeah. And he said that this thing appeared to be cone-shaped. He described it as being blunt on the top and then tapering off towards the bottom. Uh, To him, it seemed that this object was was glowing and it was like a bright white. And like I said before, amber color, which is backed up by other reports saying that this thing seemed to be of at least like a whitish color. A lot of people say, yeah, yeah, it was like it was seemed to be either emitting light or reflecting light of some type. And then there was some type of small streak trailing this object. So uh, the one thing that I wish we had some, um, cause we, we have the, you know, the cone shape blunt on top tapering off towards the bottom. So it's like when I picture in my head, I imagine the point point side down. Um, and I, because we don't have any description this is what i assume but i just assumed that it moved in that shape like it didn't turn to propel like it didn't if it was going up it just went up it didn't turn pointy side up and go up like there was no rotation it was just a cone that would drop up and then side to side yeah yeah that that seems to be the consensus with a lot of the reports about how this thing was moving um a a little bit of an unusual part of the report is that uh, it seems that that day the wind was blowing in like a southerly, like a southerly southwestern direction. And at least one report had this. I think Boudreaux himself actually said that it was unusual that this this craft seemed to be moving against the wind. Like it seemed to be moving like in a northern direction against the wind that they had. Or at so least swamp gas is out, weather balloons out. <laughs> Or it seems to be. So, I mean, that's, that's his, uh, that was his assessment of, of, uh, you know, something strange that was, was Mercury and was Mercury, Venus or Jupiter out? Could they have, uh, (laughs) well, Venus is the, uh, would be the air force's number one suspect for this because that's what they tried to pin the entire, uh, thing on, or they seem to be that perhaps Mantell or these, um, uh, Venus was supposed to be, extraordinarily bright that day and being able to to view it and this is about like in the afternoon or so like that and so that is one of the ideas that kept popping up that the air force in the beginning like this is this is what it was they they want to say that it was this thing now you can't really 
I would say, I don't know about Venus, maybe some of it, like maybe if it's a combination of the two, but there was actually some type of aircraft because a lot of people saw this thing moving like up and down, up and down, you know, hundreds or that, you know, thousands of feet and changes in altitude. Yeah, it's not some fucking atmospheric refraction of Venus. Like to me, I'm like that. To, like that's. Am I not smart enough to understand that that's a possibility? Because it seems like a stupid <laughs> like it, to me when when I ever whenever I hear that it's oh they got lost by the stars I'm like I've seen stars I think everyone on the fuck planet looks up and sees stars you tell me you go a little higher and you're like you're that much closer to the stars that you're like what is, what is this well I mean uh, you know it could have been it just seems sometimes it's like the perfect shitstorm of stuff so he's like he's suffering hypo- hypoxia you know he's yeah. kind of drunk he's there's um, drifting swamp gas at 15 miles the other way right uh there's there's this craft and then he's you know piloting away above the clouds at this point and maybe he caught a you know caught a peak at venus and started pursuing that it is it could be likely because it is it does seem to be that um Venus could have actually been out that day and been sufficiently bright enough to to cause a little bit of confusion about what he thought he was seeing. So I don't know. That's that's the I think that's the official explanation that the Air Force kind of came up with, or that's what they they put down from the evidence that they gathered. They felt like that was a satisfactory explanation about what happened and what Mantell had been seen and what he ended up chasing, uh, unfortunately to his death. Yeah. So I see. And I wonder now, well, sorry, Dan, continue your thought before I take this. uh, But, but I'm saying, yeah, just, it just being Venus does not necessarily explain everything. So I, 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 I personally wouldn't be like, okay, that's, that's a satisfactory. Okay. You know, done and dusted. We're all done here. You know, shut it down for the day. I would kind of be like, what really? Like, no, but people were seeing something else out there, not necessarily just Venus. <laughs> now, here, here's my thing. Um, what is his name? Terahuchi? Terahuchi, yeah. Um, let's remember how we started this case. It's because Terahuchi, the Jap- Japanese UFO, when they sent out for, they're like, hey, you want military support? He knew about this. Enough. This is what he referenced and why he says, no, don't send any military planes. If you knew about this, like from the official story of like, yes, they saw something. Yes, this guy climbed. Why wouldn't you call the military? Sorry. Right. Like why for Terahuchi? Why wouldn't Terahuchi call the military? That's why I'm saying. I don't think that this story of Mantel I don't think it's the full picture story. I I do start to wonder if maybe they did have some engagement between the two. Well, right? I think of I, some well, of some kind that, you know, between pilots, right? Pilots had, you know, shooting shit with other pilots and stuff had told the story of like no, this is like, yeah, fuck that. Yeah, the official story is fucking Mars and this, we saw this stuff, but like that thing shot at us. Yeah, I I'm not sure exactly because i'm not i'm not in teruchi's head or nothing but i i do remember when we were researching it like that that specifically he referenced this case he was uh aware of some of the details and, I, and whether he was 
necessarily familiar with the the kind of that like i said before that unsubstantiated rumor of the small punctures and holes in the thing whether it, it you know it's heavily implied in a lot of ufo books that uh mantel was shot down or perhaps that there was some sort of uh engagement between his aircraft and this unidentified flying object but if Teruchi was kind of operating under that, you know, I, I think that his reasoning for not having military intervention is like, well, it's either I don't want to put military members at risk if we don't have to. There doesn't need to be more people up here than we need. Um, but and it, and it also could have been a fact that be like, well, I don't want to start shit with an alien aircraft. You know, I don't want somebody coming over here and blowing this thing up and starting intergalactic war. I don't know if that yeah. was in his head, too. But uh it, it possibly it may have well been so i i i just don't know what his uh yeah his motivations were at that moment i it's it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of a person who's seen a giant what is it? it's like aircraft carrier sized ufo floating on the the wing of my plane uh, yeah yeah so i mean it could have been like yeah why would you send military up here what are they gonna do you're gonna send a couple like yeah, F- F-14s up here and do what? Like, what exactly? Like, my Blow us all fucking, out of the sky? <laughs> yeah, we're all gonna die. Um, so, yeah, I, I, he, he might have been, that might have been running through his head too. It's like, I just want to get my crew down. I want to land and that's all I want to do. If this, this thing isn't necessarily being super aggressive with us, it's not, it's not shooting at us. So, <laughs> so I don't know. There, I, there's plenty of stuff that we could put in, in, Teriuchi's mind, but I don't think we'll never know unless we just talk to the guy. <laughs> yeah, we got to summon him on a Ouija, right? Probably. Um. So, like, Pickering was actually interviewed later by UFO researcher William E. Jones, and he kind of said the whole thing. You know, it, it was still kind of fresh in his mind about what they saw and what this thing, what they thought this thing was, because he kind of clarified like the next kind of probable explanation is that it was a weather balloon or some type of weather balloon and asking him, it's like the weather balloons that they were familiar with in 1948, like all would have been like 15 to 20 feet in diameter would have been round or ball. Like wouldn't have had like a tail or nothing like that. And they don't really fit with your traditional uh, weather balloon. So that's, that's what he was operating on the assumption that this thing was not, just a little weather balloon. Cause I think that, I mean, if you look up pictures of kind of um, 19, I think forties and fifties weather balloons, it's just, it's really just a balloon with like a string on it. And then it's just like, they just let it up and then it goes like, that's really all it is. Yeah. Um, but there is a different type of balloon that seems to fit the description of from the, the devil's foot. Yeah. The magic balloon from the devil's footprints, right? The magic balloon from the devil's footprints. I, I'm not sure that's the same one. <laughs> I don't think so, but there's a balloon called the Skyhook balloon, um, not not Operation Skyhook, and um, it's not the kind of one that you send up like Batman. Uh, is that Dark Knight Rises? Dark yeah, Knight. whichever one where it, they go to was that's it, the Fulton. The f- Isn't that the Fulton Fulton recovery thing? But yeah, it's also yeah. called Skyhook too. There's also like a Skyhook recovery system, and there's the Fulton recovery, but there's a Skyhook one too, I think. Um, and so this balloon, if you look it up, this one is like, this is more of the weather balloon that I picture in my head. Because if you, if you look this one up, it's got like this long drifting tail. 
and it's it's mostly clear seems to be made of clear plastic um these these were operational and they were using these ones at the time and but these were relatively new uh in in the late 40s yeah you had these that were made of like a they were constructed of like a polyethylene material and so reflecting their light the reflecting of light could have happened or that's at least with um experts who are familiar with the the construction of these balloons they say like yeah it could have possibly been that thing because these things are very large and when you when you ask a lot of the um you go through a lot of the reports and the interviews with people you have people like pfc stanley oliver said it resembled an ice cream cone with topped with red and if you look at skyhook balloons some of them are they have like a red on the top or they have some red like on the bottom or something like it's it looks like that. And when they talk about a tail drifting out behind it, I'm like, that that seems to be it. You had another person, uh, Lieutenant Warner, who uh, said it appeared as like a partially like like a parachute with the bright with sun reflecting off the top of the silk. But there also seemed to be some type of red light or something around the lower part of it, whether it was light or just it was that red material. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily, I, I think these kind of line up with the skyhook balloon. So it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I think it gets it clearer or gets a closer well, to it. Well, except it was going <laughs> against the wind, right? Right. So that, yeah, that's what, that's what at least one person seemed to report is that it seemed to be moving against the wind, whether it was 100%. Nobody was, nobody at the time from what I can, from what I can tell. And most of the reports that they gathered, nobody was ever directly under it. So ne- nobody seemed to be uh, right beneath the craft in its, you know, in its direction of travel or wherever it was going. Didn't seem to be. So people were either like it was miles away or they seemed to be like in different different areas of the, um, you know, in the Kentucky and that southern Kentucky area. People saw it, but nobody was directly under it. So it's just like it was going up and down and, and moving wherever it was moving. So I don't maybe they got the wind direction wrong not sure or it maybe the wind direction was going where he was was going in a southerly direction so yeah i i don't so i mean you can't really say that it wasn't or you know i don't think he he just said it seemed to be going against the wind so mm. <laughs> all right well any final thoughts on that what do you think um this one like cuz if if this craft were moving in a more erratic fashion like a more you know quick uh, you know moving faster i mean this guy they said it was moving at like 500 miles per hour i don't i'm not sure how accurate that is like that seems like really that's really fast and i don't think balloons travel that fast um that's pretty nuts like that's a weird i think that's a weird remark and that's kind of a curious uh curious description of like what this thing was moving so whether i whether or not i was that thing was actually moving at that speed not 100% sure. I'd like to know. But um, it really does sound, from the descriptions, like a lot of the descriptions, it does sound like a weather balloon. It does sound like this skyhook balloon. And when you look up pictures of it, you're like, oh, yeah, it does kind of look like this. And at least I think there there is a report of a skyhook balloon that had been released, not necessarily in the area, but from like another base. And these things were relative. I think these things were relatively new, and they were using these types of balloons to, um, as a way to measure like radiation in the atmosphere. I think this was this was kind of like the precursor to that, or to, to take special readings, not just weather readings, uh, in the in, 
it high up in the atmosphere and stuff like that. what what it was doing below like the cloud line and what it was doing like way down apparently like almost touching the ground and then taking back up i don't know <laughs> faulty balloon um, i don't know <laughs> i i don't the only way i can buy the balloon thing the only way i could possibly buy that is if they got the balloon it was in fact the balloon and then everyone else lied in order to like save face for their friends because they didn't want him to say he went out chasing a weather balloon. Sure. That's the only way I could believe that story. I would have to think everyone else was lying to to save face. So I just don't think that these kind of pilots, you know, that have that kind of experience are, are making that mistake. I just don't see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, uh, like I said before, the balloons that they were familiar with, like they had, they had, I'm, I'm sure Mantell was familiar with seeing these weather balloons, which at the time would be made of like a type of like brownish rubber. And we're probably, like we said, 15, 20 feet in diameter, maybe. Uh, and, and I mean, that's definitely not what Godman Tower described seeing. Like they saw something big and they saw something yeah. trailing around there. Um, Mantell might have not have thought it was that thing and he may have not actually realized that this, this thing was probably way higher than it actually was this thing could have been 60 70 thousand feet above him and he just thought this thing was much closer like yeah from his whether he was suffering from hypoxia or something i mean i don't see how you couldn't be suffering from hypoxia if you were you know you were way up there and you're not even using oxygen at that point like i would like that that stuff can set in pretty quick. And then plus you had like, I, I, I it's hard for me to speak to the, his, uh, his state of mind, but I would imagine he's, I mean, you're an, you're 25 years old. Like we said before, you're a 25 year old pilot in your P 51. You finally get to open that thing up and like, you're going to take a look at this thing and you're just going to, they just tell you, Hey, go take a look at this. And you're just like, yeah. And <laughs> going just, straight you know, up. <laughs> yeah. Straight into the danger zone. And I, I, your adrenaline is pumping. You're probably your, so your heart rate's going up, your breathing becomes faster. And I would assume that you would probably succumb to that, you know, that condition pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe from what he was saying, uh, it, it could have been that could have been something else. I, if it was an actual UFO, I don't think it actually, they engage in any type of combat or nothing. Like maybe he did see something and then it took off, but I don't think because um, most people said that this thing took up like over it was overcast that day. Once it got above the clouds, everybody pretty much like lost sight of it once it got up yeah. there. So um, but it didn't it didn't move in any erratic mash uh, like fashion. It wasn't like boom, boom, boom. It was like skipping around the sky or anything. It didn't defy any laws of physics like we get with some uh, fun UFO sightings. It was just kind of like. It's yeah. not, that's what it sounds like to me. Exactly. That's the music that plays in my head when I think about this, <laughs> this UFO. Anyways, so. that's the um, Mantell UFO incident. As promised, a little companion um, confidential for to go along with case file one. Is it 181 or 180? Uh, I think 180. The Japanese UFO flight. 1648 incident, whatever that one was. That'd be 181. No, it was 181. Right. Oh, perfect. Uh, the companion show. Uh, Dan, you want to sign us off? 
Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This is ATT Confidential uh, with Brayden and Dan. And just remember, always keep it confidential.